Uh, if you brought your Bible or your phone, you can begin opening to the New, New Testament, Old Testament book of Zechariah, and we are headed to Zechariah chapter 9 this morning. If you're just jumping in with us, we are this week finishing our series, basically doing one sermon through each of the minor prophets, getting a taste of God's word to his Old Testament people that is powerful, living, and active for us today in the New Testament as well. We've called the series God at the Mic, God speaking to us through his word and through the voice of the prophets. Zechariah is the second to last or the next to last prophet, not only in order in the Old Testament, Zechariah and then Malachi, but historically he is also the next to last to minister and, and to live. And so we are getting here now to the final years of the lives of Old Testament Israel before this incredible moment when God himself will come down. Uh, we know that Zechariah was written beginning in 520 BC. And so this is very late in the history of Israel. And at this point now, uh, the Assyrian Empire has come in. The Bab- Babylonian Empire has come in. They have destroyed parts of Israel and Judah. The exiles have taken place. And God has been faithful and brought Israel back home. And it is in this season of life that Zechariah lives and serves. Now, up to this point, In the minor prophets, as we have walked through them, the vast majority of what God's prophets spoke concerned the the immediate or very soon coming future of the nation of Israel. However, in particular with Zechariah, we now get really the widest possible view of all of God's plans and purposes, and Zechariah contains actually more prophetic words speaking about this Messiah who is going to come one day than any other book among the minor prophets. And and Zechariah gets quoted in the New Testament more than any other minor prophet. And so we will get just a taste of that here this morning. And Zechariah's words are very clearly and undeniably promises of God fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So hear now God's word of comfort, not only to the nation of Israel, but God's word of comfort to his people gathered here this morning. I'm going to read to us Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10 to begin our time this morning. God says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together and thank him for his perfect word to us. Father God, we come before you this morning humble and grateful at the same time. Father, thank you for your truth contained in your word. Thank you for your mercy that it is new to us every morning. Oh Lord, how desperate we are for your kindness and your grace to us. Lord, would you draw us to yourself again this morning? Remind us of your promises to us. Challenge us, convict us. Fill us with your joy and your heart this morning, we pray. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Three eternal promises that we see here from God made to God's people through the voice of the prophet Zechariah. The first is this, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8 of chapter 9 to see this play out. The first is this, God promises to protect 
his people. God promises to protect his people. Listen to this description here in uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 8 now. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited, a mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. God is telling us here in these first eight verses, among many things, that God knows the future. God knows every aspect of the future. You and I do not. We often want to, but God knows the future. Verses 1 through 8 are a very specific word of judgment against Israel's enemy neighbors. It's, it's a who's who list of all those around Israel who had picked on and oppressed and attacked Israel over the last several thousand years. And so Zechariah prophesies the invasions into Syria, Phoenicia, Damascus, Tyre, Sidon, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod. And Zechariah prophesies the really unexplainable protection of the nation of Israel. Uh, Many so-called critical scholars of the Bible, those who would stand over Scripture, uh, begin with sort of a circular reasoning assumption, which is, There couldn't possibly be anything such as as true prophecy, or or God couldn't possibly actually do miracles, therefore they're not true. So you can see the circular reasoning there. And so when critical scholars come to the Bible, they've assumed that there can't possibly be prophecy, and therefore when we read these words in the Old Testament, well, they must have been written much later than they claim to have been written, and they must have been written by somebody else than who claims to have written them. However, When we come to biblical scholarship, those who come to the scripture and they submit themselves to it by faith that God has given us his word and that his word is powerful, that it is perfect to us, but also come studying the scripture, come looking at the context, come looking at other books that are written around the same time, come looking at the history and the geography and the the archaeology going on around it, when they come to God's word, both by faith in him and by honest study of God's word, we can see particularly an example like Zechariah that what we have in front of us is indeed a prophetic word spoken by a man led by God's Holy Spirit who spoke realities of what would happen hundreds of years before they actually took place. Zechariah chapter 9 is actually an amazing example of this because verses 1 through 8 precisely predict the conquest of the eastern Mediterranean coastland by the famous Greek king, Alexander the Great. 
Alexander, in history, famously crossed what's called the Hellespont into Turkey soon after his father, King Philip, had died. This happened in 336 BC. And at that time, Alexander attacked these exact nations that Zechariah prophesied 200 years before it happens because God knows the future. And if God knows the future, then we can trust in him. If we dig a little bit deeper, though, we can take one particular example, and that's the nation of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, the nation of Tyre that, that God actually takes an extra verse to explain the realities of what that judgment on the nation of Tyre is going to look like. The Bible says, Tyre has built herself a rampart, and I will, quote, strike down her power on the sea. Now, what's interesting about the ancient uh, city nation of Tyre is that the city itself, the capital city, originally existed on the mainland. However, in a pretty, pretty smart, pretty creative maneuver, they moved the entire capital across water and built it on an island that was about a mile out to sea. This obviously made them feel a whole lot safer and a whole lot more secure. They built a double wall that was 150 feet high around their city, and so they felt pretty untouchable. When Assyria came through, they could not break into Tyre. When Babylon came through, they could not break the walls and enter into Tyre. So when Alexander the Great shows up, they think, oh, no problem, we'll be fine. But God knows the future. And looking back for us now in history, we know for a fact that Alexander's army, pretty smart guys, actually filled in the gap is actually about a half a mile from the mainland out to the island. They filled it in specifically with the stones and the timber that they stripped down from the old remnants of the old city of Tyre in order to build a land bridge to get out there and eventually took apart Tyre. This fulfills Ezekiel chapter 26 and verse 12 that says, your stones and timber and soil, they will cast into the midst of the waters. Verse 14 of Ezekiel 26 says, your city will never be rebuilt. And to this day, the city of Tyre has never been rebuilt. So much for human pride, human arrogance, but we see that God knows the future. But God takes it a step further. He says that the Lord's eyes are on his people to protect them. Verse eight again, God speaking, then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro, no oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. If you are in Christ this morning, hear again from God's word, God sees you. God cares about you. God knows the circumstances that you face. He is not surprised by them. He is sovereign over them. He cares for what you are going through, and he promises to protect. He promises, in fact, that even the very worst of circumstances, things that will happen that hurt, that God will use those even for your good, according to his perfect plan and his perfect foreknowledge. The, uh, the phrase helicopter parenting hit me this week as I was reviewing this part of Scripture. Now, helicopter parenting, if you're not familiar with the term, is usually a derogatory term referring to a parent who is just constantly over, watching over their kids, making sure nothing bad happens whatsoever. Um, I embrace the phrase. I live for helicopter parenting. I, I get the gold medal in her- helicopter parenting, meaning I love my kids, as we all do, and I want to 
protect them because I care about them. They're my kids. Um, I love watching, and maybe you've seen these on YouTube. There's the videos that are like the super dad videos, and it's, it's usually uh, a young dad who's got a toddler or a baby, and the toddler inevitably is like sitting on the couch and suddenly starts to tip over, and you're like, save that child. And the dad at the last possible second reaches out and like grabs a child with one hand, doesn't spill his coffee, and just keeps watching ESPN. That's the, the image here of who God the Father is for us. He is in the best way possible helicopter parenting. His eyes are always on you. My kids do not realize 95% of the time that I am watching, keeping an eye out for them. I'm watching in other ways too, but I'm keeping an eye on them. God is doing the same for us as well. Now, with this particular verse here, what's interesting, the, the Jewish historian Josephus, Josephus does not write scripture. He, his life was between 37 and 100 AD. So he lived just after Christ is resurrected and goes back to heaven. But Josephus wrote a great history of the nation of Israel. And he actually speaks to this situation uh, as to this question of why or how is it that Alexander the Great came to spare Israel when he wiped the floor with all of the other neighboring nations. And Josephus' version is essentially this. He says that there was a man named Jadis, who was the high priest of Israel at the time. And Jadis has a vision from God. And in this vision, God tells Jadis that he ought to adorn the entire city of Jerusalem with wreaths, that he ought to actually open up the city gates wide as Alexander's armies are coming forward, and that he should instruct the people to dress in white. And so according to Josephus, all these things took place. And... Um, as Alexander the Great led his army upward, he had been having dreams and he connected his own dreams with what he was seeing in front of him and felt like this was direction from God that he ought to not uh, destroy the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Now, scholars, critical and biblical uh, across the board, essentially uh, would say that this story is not accurate. Um, it, is, it is a fabrication. It's made up. But what we do know historically beyond a shadow of a doubt is that Alexander the Great did not touch Israel. Didn't touch them. Wiped the floor with everything around them, but God, as we look at it through Scripture's eyes, God protected Israel. He said he was going to do it 200 years before it actually took place. God will protect his people. God will protect you. Whatever you may be facing, God is good. He is in total control, and even the worst things that happen to us God will use them for our good. We don't know God's precise purposes in the day, day in and day out here and now. We cannot look at a particular circumstance and say authoritatively, well, this is what God is doing. We can do that when the scripture tells us, which is what it's done here. I don't know from day to day what God, his ultimate purposes might be, but I know who God is. I trust him. I trust his character. I trust his promises. And I believe the Lord when he says that his eyes, in the most fatherly, loving, caring way possible, his eyes are on us. Number two, Zechariah gives us another promise for the nation of Israel as well as for God's people today. Number two is this. God promises that your Savior King is coming. Your Savior King is coming. Coming. 
Remember, again, around 520 BC, Zechariah is writing and serving, and this is verses 9 and 10. I'm going to read it to us one more time. This should sound extremely familiar. Maybe you're hearing it and going, oh, I didn't know that that was in the Old Testament. It is. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Zechariah moves from the attributes of a powerful but evil king in Alexander the Great, one who is to come, to another king who is yet to come, but one who is not only powerful, but who is also good. The centerpiece of the prophet's message here in chapter 9 is the coming of Zion's greater king. You know, we know these two verses well because all four of the gospels quote Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, that is Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12, and they all ascribe them to the circumstance in the New Testament that we now look back and refer to as the triumphal entry when Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, and we also refer to it as Palm Sunday. Five Sundays from now, in fact, we will be celebrating that very special day. But here, in 520 BC, Zechariah tells us that a king is going to come. If we were there in that moment in Jerusalem when, when Jesus arrived, we remember that the people took up palm branches and they yelled, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Zechariah wants to give us a few other details though. Zechariah tells us here in just these two verses that there are four distinct characteristics of this king who is going to come. When you see someone come, if you're not sure if it's him, look for these four realities, essentially, these four characteristics in him. The first of the four that Zechariah identifies is that he will be righteous. He will be just or righteous. See, the problem for us is our sin separates us from a holy and righteous God. God cannot and will not be around sin. But this says that, that one is going to come who is righteous. Zechariah foresees one who will be perfectly just, perfectly righteous, having no sin, one who therefore must be God to have no sin, but who is going to come to you, who's going to come near to us. Think about this. What, what earthly king, really, would ever condescend to the, the least among his people, the, the poorest or the most untouchable of his people. And yet here the Bible is saying that God who is holy, who is righteous, is going to come to us. How can that tension be resolved? Your righteous king is coming and he will come near to you. Well, the second attribute that is immediately used in the exact same phrase is that he is bringing salvation. This problem of God's righteousness and our unrighteousness is going to be solved because secondly, he's bringing salvation with him. This king who is to come, he possesses salvation and he is going to offer it up and give it away freely. He is the Messiah king. He's the savior king. He's the anointed king who is here among many places in the Old Testament being prophesied and promised. 
not just salvation from the day-to-day, for them, Assyria or Babylon or even Greece, not just salvation for you and I from the challenges and the difficulties that we face, but eternal salvation from the problem of sin. How will this king arrive? Well, the third attribute that Zechariah gives us is that he will come and that he will be humble. He'll be humble or gentle. He's righteous, he's bringing salvation, and he's humble. This is not usually the characteristic associated with kings, let alone any modern-day political leader holding any office anywhere, but rather this leader, this king who is going to come is going to demonstrate himself to be humble, caring. We looked last week and we look again now at Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Jesus will say of himself, come to me for I am gentle and lowly or humble, meek. Come to me and you will find rest for your soul. In Mark 10, 25, it says that this one who's going to come is one who will come to serve, but not to be served and to give even his very life as a ransom for many. What kind of king is coming? A humble king, one who will stoop down to you, one who cares for you, one who's going to give up his very life for you. By comparison, Alexander would have arrived on a war horse, but Jesus is going to arrive, this king is going to arrive on a donkey, which is significant for two reasons. A donkey is still something that royalty would ride. The king is coming, and yet in in coming on a donkey, there is humility in his coming. Fourthly, the Bible says that he's going to speak peace or bring peace peace. And you notice it's really, he's going to speak peace because he's going to come in authority. He has the power, he has the voice to be able to, at his word, speak peace, and the nations of the world will experience peace because he is establishing authority. In various junctures in our nation's history and other nations around the world, you'll see signs that say essentially the idea of no justice, no peace. They're not wrong. You cannot have true peace if there is not first true justice. And so what Zechariah is saying is there is a king who's going to come who will establish both, who has authority at his word, he will make peace for all time, even as he brings true justice and true mercy. In the very next words, it says the king is going to end war. Not like the war, but war. No more. That's because in his sovereignty and in his goodness, he will bring victory. This is the Messiah saying, I win. I take authority and I will bring nothing but peace. And Zechariah even helps us out here. So how do we respond to these four realities of this this Savior King who is coming? He tells us right on the front end, rejoice. He says, I'm giving you permission to shout out loud, to be excited, to be filled with joy that there is one who is coming who is going to solve the problems that you have no ability to solve yourself. That is the reality of being a Christian in the New Testament, that we can be filled with joy knowing that this Savior King has already come. He's already done his work. If you look again at Zechariah 9, verse 9, and then verse 10, the entire church age 
fits between verse 9 and verse 10. And by church age, I mean from the moment that, that Christ resurrected and the Holy Spirit came down until the moment that Christ returns. That's the church age. It fits between verse 9 and verse 10. See, verse 9 is describing Jesus' first advent. It's the first coming of Jesus when he came down. And Jesus accepted the perfect justice for sin that you and I deserved on a cross that he didn't deserve. He went to the cross willingly and died for our sins and then rose again from the dead three days later. He brought salvation to anyone who will renounce themselves as king of their own lives, who will take themselves off the throne and say, Lord Jesus, I want you to be king in my life, in my heart, in my decisions. He's offered to us the free gift of salvation, salvation from a king. Jesus has come down already. He has demonstrated himself to be gentle and lowly and humble, being born as a baby, becoming even a servant to death. And in verse 10, promises us the second coming. That one day, we don't know when, and anybody who tells you they know when, they're lying, but we do know that one day, Jesus is coming back. There will be a second coming, a second advent of Jesus, and in that moment, he will take all of his people for all time who have trusted in him as Lord and Savior, he will take them to a very real and a very eternal promised place called heaven. We look forward to that day. We anticipate that day. And at the same time, he has promised very clearly that all those who reject him, all those who will not trust in his lordship and salvation, he will send to a very real place called hell. These are the promises both of the Old Testament and the New and so the invitation here in Zechariah 9 is come to the Savior King. Give him your life. He has given him yours. Trust in him today as your Savior and as your King. Third and finally, God promises that he is your shepherd King. He's promised to protect us. He's promised to be our Savior King and here at the end of chapter 9, he promises to be our shepherd king. This finishes out chapter 9. Listen to verses 11 now through 17. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women." Now, verses 11 through 17 here, they don't have as clear-cut of a historical reference as we saw in verses 1 through 
8, and then again clearly in verses 9 and 10, but they do clearly speak of this big picture of God's promises of victory again, of salvation again, and of restoration again. However, if we narrow down to just verse 13, we have a notable exception here in seeing, again, God's promises, the, the already and the not yet. That when God makes a promise, there is an experience of things that have already happened and an anticipation of things that have not yet happened, but will. And we get both in verse 13 that says, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Now, there is only one time in recorded human history when Israel fought against Greece. As we already saw, Alexander the Great spared Israel in his day and age. But we have another moment. 150 years after Alexander the Great dies, another Greek king comes to rule, and his name is, maybe you know this name from history, Antiochus Epiphanes. You ever heard of Antiochus Epiphanes? You're welcome. Antiochus Epiphanes. In Israel, so he's ruling over an area which includes Israel, and he apparently had a real big problem with the Jews and their worship of one true God, and so he actually forbids them from making daily sacrifices. He uh, forbids them to observe the Sabbath. He forbids them to use the scripture and actually destroys any copies of the Old Testament that he can get his hands on. He forbids them to do circumcision. And then he actually begins to build his own Grecian pagan altars on top of Israel's altars. So all this comes to a head in December of 167 BC. He brought the cult of Zeus into the Jewish temple and sets up an altar and offers up pig flesh on Israel's altar. If you know anything about Israel, like this is the, the ultimate no-no. And so you can understand that the Israelites did not take this action uh, lying down. If you know anything about Jewish history, maybe connect a few dots here. So there was a priest at that time named Matthias who kills an enemy officer of Greece because this enemy officer was demanding that, um, that the Jews have to come and participate in these sacrifices of burning up pigs on their altar to Zeus. He kills this soldier and then runs away. So Matthias runs into the wilderness and he takes with him his five sons. Among his five sons is a man whose name is Judas, who will assume leadership after his father dies and will lead a rebellion and is later given the name Judas Maccabees or Judas Maccabeus. This is the entire reason that the nation of Israel to this day celebrates the holiday of Hanukkah, remembering these realities. So the Maccabees, their family, achieves almost 100 years of Jewish independence before a, a little tiny upstart country by the name of Rome shows up in 63 BC and wipes out the rebellion and, and wipes Israel flat, destroys the second temple. That's verse 13. <laughs> now, after verse 13, we see Zechariah's shift become more wide and broad again, and we get this overwhelming sense of promise that God is going to shepherd his people. He is going to protect them. He is going to save them. He is going to restore and shepherd them. Verse 16, he says, on that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. I love the, the image of God as a shepherd. There's a reason that if you, if you talk to anybody who's a believer, if you talk to anybody who's not a believer, almost all of us know Psalm 23. We all know that Psalm because of the promises that you hear, because of the love of a shepherd 
to his sheep. Listen to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God is our shepherd. And the prophecies fulfilled for Israel in the centuries after Zechariah are yet fulfilled even greater in our ultimate shepherd king, Jesus. Jesus talks about shepherds a little bit. If we go to John chapter 10 in the New Testament, John chapter 10, verses 10 and 11 say this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Every promise here at the the end of Zechariah is abundantly, clearly, ultimately fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' blood spilled is the covenant, making a way for renewed relationship with God the Father. Jesus sets prisoners free from sin and death every day. Oh, to be a prisoner of hope, to take up the yoke of Jesus Christ because it is light. Jesus brings restoration. Jesus invites you to participate as his bow and as his arrow in victory over the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. See, here's the reality. Satan hates you. In case you forgot that this morning, let me just remind you that there is an enemy and he hates you. But Jesus has already won. Jesus has already defeated this enemy. Not only that, Jesus has already defeated your sin. Jesus has already defeated death so that you will not have to experience those realities eternally. Jesus wins the victory for you. Jesus will shepherd you. And oh, by the way, when you come to know him as your Lord and Savior, you are gifted a brand new identity. The old has gone. The new has come. Zechariah illustrates that beautifully and says that the very jewels of this king's crown, that as they shine, that that's you. Your identity, you are a shining jewel in his crown. What what an identity. It's how much he loves you, values you, that you participate in. His goodness and his bringing restoration doesn't need you. He wants you to be a part of what he is doing here in the world. Jesus completely fills every jot and tittle of the Old Testament. He fulfills the law. He fulfills the the prophets. He fulfills the covenant promises. Jesus is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. And our response is, Shout aloud, rejoice. Jesus coming to earth the first time and the second time is not God's plan B. He was not surprised. Rather, his plan of redemption between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit began before the foundations of the world, says Scripture. There is one message of Scripture, one unified message that God reigns from beginning to end 
and that he has come to save his people. And so people believe and rejoice. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, we, we take comfort this morning. We take joy this morning knowing that promises made 2,500 years ago were fulfilled 200 years later and again 400, 500 years later with the coming of Christ and are fulfilled every day as you continue to protect, as you continue to save and as you continue to shepherd your people. Thank you that Jesus is the one who is promised. Thank you that he came. Thank you that he is coming again. So, Father, as we, as we struggle in this life, as we struggle with sin or, or guilt or hurts, Lord, we find ourselves victims of the various wickedness that is out there, and we find ourselves guilty of the same wickedness ourselves. Lord, our hope is in the cross of Jesus. Lord, we look back to that historical moment that Jesus came and lived the perfect life and died on the cross to save us from our sins. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It's a gift of your grace, Father. And we just come to you this morning afresh and say, Lord Jesus, forgive us. Save us. Remind us of the new identity that we have in Christ. Remind us that we have been filled with your Holy Spirit. Remind us that we can say no to sin and yes to godliness and to righteousness. Remind us that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Thank you that you're king. And Lord Jesus, we long for the day that you will come home to take us to be with you. That you will come here to take us home to be with you. Come, Lord Jesus. Even as the book of Revelation, even as the entire Bible ends, come, Lord Jesus. Father, that is the cry of our hearts. We need you. Come, Lord Jesus. Come in our hearts today, Holy Spirit. Lead us and guide us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.